0: around what does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to live his way? So we're doing the series The Way, looking at the Sermon on the Mount. But we're kind of doing in chunks and in between the chunks, doing some more topical stuff around practical equipping and tools to help us follow Jesus and and live as apprentices to Jesus. And one of these things you might find surprising is discovering your identity and calling. Um, We might not often talk about this in church. We talk lots and lots about... Excuse me about God and knowing God and who God is. And this is primary and this is where we start and this is so important. But also an important part of our journey in growing um, to be more like Jesus is actually growing to be more our true selves, which actually means learning about ourselves and actually going on a journey of self-discovery and self-knowledge. And this is something that has been a value throughout the church history but maybe sort of recently kind of has not been necessarily. Sometimes we sort of say, it's all about God. It's not about us at all. And kind of think that the Christian thing to do is to reject yourself, sort of repress yourself, which is actually not true. That, that actually God wants us to be our true selves in the image of Jesus to become who he's uniquely made us to be, which is actually um, his design, his creation. There's, there's goodness and there's beauty. There's also brokenness. And the journey of self-discovery is actually embracing and working through and identifying the brokenness in ourselves as well. And if we don't do this, if we don't embrace this journey, eventually it comes back to bite us. And you hear so many stories, right, of of particularly pastors or or leaders in society who, who... um, grow they're famous, they 're famous, they have amazing influence, amazing productivity, but then there 's a, a breakdown there 's there's, uh, some some sin there 's something that 's in themselves what we could be called their shadow side, their brokenness that 's been rejected that hasn 't been dealt with, that comes back to bite them and and sort of the purpose around this is as, as apprentices of Jesus, how can we embrace a journey of, of self-discovery, of discovering identity and calling the beauty and the brokenness so that that doesn't happen to us, so that we can go on this journey in God? I'm going to give you some quotes um, from church history, quite old people. This is Augustine. He's famous for saying this. How can you draw close to God when you are far from your own self? And he has a prayer, Lord, grant that I may know myself, that I may know Thee. Even John Calvin said this, Our wisdom in so far as it ought to be deemed true and solid wisdom consists almost entirely of two parts. It's the knowledge of God and of ourselves. But as these are connected together by many ties, it's not easy to determine which of the two precedes and gives birth to the other. They're saying that actually growing is about knowing God, but not just knowing God, but also knowing ourselves, knowing who he's made us to be, and also knowing like how far we fall short of him, and how much we need him, and these things are connected and go together. Peter Sczerba is sort of like a leading sort of figure in this in recent history. He's got a really famous book called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, and he says this: the vast majority of us go to our graves without knowing who we are. We unconsciously live someone else's life, or at least someone else's expectations for us. This does violence to ourselves, our relationship with God, and ultimately to others it says that this is actually a, a really important thing um, one of the cool things working with kids um, when I was a prep teacher and, and anyone of you guys a lot of you guys have had kids or have worked with kids um, like little prep kids the cool thing is is they they are basically just themselves Like, they don't really hide too much. Like, there's this freedom, there's this expression, there's this honesty. You know how they feel because their face just says it all the time. And this this is kind of just what kids are like. But often, we kind of, through school, through relationships, through problems, we kind of learn that actually we kind of have to hide ourselves. And we kind of have to put on a false self, and we have to go with other people's expectations in order to feel safe. And we can end up living a life where we are always looking at what other people want, what other people expect, what other people think, what we should do, and in doing that, actually may not even know who we are, may not even know ourselves at all, and that this can actually be incredibly damaging. But this journey of self-discovery can also be hard because it means having the courage to face that, to embrace those difficulties and honestly work through things. I wanna give you some examples um, just from scripture, we're going to look at the passages Michael, Michael just read out and a couple of others, just looking at people, we'll start with Jesus, who knew their identity and calling, who knew who they were and therefore knew what they were called to do. And we, our culture kind of doesn't really start there with who we are. We just always talk about what we do. And that's kind of how our culture gives people value, gives people meaning, gives people purposes in what you do. If what you do is important, then you have value doesn't matter really what your character's like. It just matters what you do. But biblically, these things are linked. Who we are and what we do are together. And really, who we are comes first, identity. And when we know who we are, we know what we're called to do. And that's what we'll see in these passages here as well. So this is, this is Jesus. And this was an incredibly significant moment for Jesus and the people around him, where the Father speaks his identity And that's linked to his calling i'll just read through this again then jesus came from galilee to the jordan to be baptized by john but john tried to deter him saying i need to be baptized by you and you'd come to me and jesus replied let it be so now it is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness so john agrees as soon as jesus was baptized he went up out of the water And at that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. With him I'm well pleased. And this is is an incredibly significant moment in the life of Jesus. The father speaks and says, this is who you are. You are my son, I love you. I'm well pleased. That is Jesus' identity. That is who he is. He is the son of God. He's the son of his father who loves him. And Jesus lives out of that identity. Son of God as well is linked to this figure of the Messiah who has been sent to save. So if Jesus is the son of God, it's linked to who he is. It's linked to his calling to come and to save and to redeem. But the interesting thing is, straight after this really significant moment in Jesus' life, He's sent into the wilderness to be tested or tempted. But we, we looked at this passage earlier in the year. This, the temptations are interesting because they are actually attacks on his calling. It says, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. So just before that, the Father said, You are my Son. And then Satan comes and says, if you are the son of God, prove it, do something. And it's almost this fall into this trap that our culture's fallen into. do something to show who you are, rather than trust who you are and live out of that place. And this is, this is where the attack comes. He wants to derail Jesus' identity, because if he can do that, then the whole calling, the whole plan of salvation will be thwarted. Jesus responds, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone but in every word that comes from the mouth of God. He holds to his true self, his identity in the father's eyes and, and rejects this temptation to find his identity in what he does. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple if you are the son of God. Again, attack on the identity. Throw yourself down for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike a foot against the stone. Satan uses scripture even to try and convince him to prove it, to prove who you are rather than to trust and rely and live out of who he is. Jesus says it is written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I'll give you if you will bow down and worship me. Again, that is to completely give away his identity. He is the son of God who worships the father, who submits to the father, and Satan wants him to worship him. So Jesus responds strongly, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him. The angels came and attended to him. You see in Jesus that this this sort of season, after this, he goes into ministry and, and he's doing amazing works. But this was really when his identity was, was solidified for the people around him. And, and he, he, he comes to this place of trust in the Father and, and rejecting this temptation to give, give away his identity and move into something else. You see this as well in other characters. If you go to John chapter one, if you're following along, this is John the Baptist. And again, this is someone who was so strong on his identity and therefore knew what to do, even though there was great pressure on him to be something else. This is John 1 from verse 19. Now, this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. So this is John. So he's in the wilderness, he's baptizing, and the religious leaders, like the powerful people, come to to question him. And he said he did not fail to confess, but freely confessed and said, I am not the Messiah. So John really clearly knew who he was not. They asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? No. So there's all these people, that all these things that maybe John's this, maybe John's this. John knows, no, I'm not that. No, I'm not that. And he actually gives three no's. And then finally they said, Who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself, John? And he says this. John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. John was so strong on his identity and his calling that even when the religious leaders are coming to him and sort of questioning him, putting things on him, he says, no, I'm not that, no, I'm not that, no, I'm not that. Yes, this is what I am. This is who I am. This is what God has called me to do. The Pharisees who'd been sent questioned him then, well, then why do you baptize if you're not the Messiah and you're not Elijah and you're not the prophet? I baptize with water, John replied, but among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. This all happened at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. So John knew who he was and, and gives three no's to one yes. And that part of that is as well, knowing who we're not. Like there may have even been a temptation to, 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 to give in. Are you the prophet? Like, oh, that sounds pretty good. Maybe I'd like to be the prophet. Like, but no, that's not who I am. This is who I am. This is who God has called me to be and what God has called me to do. There's also this story in Matthew. This is Matthew 16 now with Peter, and Peter recognising who Jesus is. And this is a significant moment for Peter and his identity. It says this, When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? So again, who is Jesus? It's around his identity. They replied, Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. So this is people are really confused now about who Jesus is. Like people think John the Baptist is the Messiah and now they think Jesus who is the Messiah is John the Baptist. And there's this confusion around identity. But what about you, he asks? Who do you say that I am? And this is such a good question, right? Like, like Jesus looks at Peter, says, who do you say that I am? doesn't matter what all these other people say about me. What do you say about me? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living god jesus replied blessed are you simon son of jonah for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood but by my father in heaven and i tell you that you are peter and on this rock i will build my church and the gates of hades will not overcome it now this is a really interesting passage because this has caused a whole lot of controversy in church history and really probably potentially the biggest separation between catholics and protestants is is the understanding of this passage. And Catholics take it to mean when when Jesus is saying that Peter, you're the rock, they're saying that that's actually Peter is the rock and he's the Pope and he's the first Pope. And then we have like a, a progression of Popes all the way down to the Pope we have today. Whereas Protestants say, well, no, Jesus wasn't saying that Peter, it's that Peter's the person is the rock, but the rock is that Jesus is the Messiah and Peter had this confession, and, the, and so therefore the church is not built on a person who's the leader, but on the, the fact that Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God. And this is, this is where we stand here, but it's interesting that this passage, right, is really a passage about Peter and his identity and his calling. And Peter, in the stories of the the um, gospels, you see him. He's like this guy of extremes, right? Like he jumps in, he's extreme, but then he fails, and he's extreme, and he's kind of back and he's forth. But Jesus is saying to him, Peter, and Peter means rock. That's what the name actually means. And so it's sort of play on words. You are Peter. You are rock. And on this rock, I will build my church. And Peter. This is, this is him receiving his identity and his calling to lead the church to be this strong foundation, teaching who Jesus is. And you see this in the story, the rest of the Gospels, the Book of Acts. You see this man who was sort of two extremes, becoming strong and faithful all the way to death. And he, when he was tested, when when Jesus is being um, betrayed, Peter failed the test, but is restored. And then, and then finds this freedom and forgiveness and new life, whereas Jesus succeeded when he was tested. So i would give you those three stories. This gives three examples of, of Jesus, John, Peter, people who knew their identity, knew who they were, and knew what God had called them to do. And you might be thinking like, whoa, I'm not Jesus or Peter or John. Like these are, these are like huge figures in the biblical story, in history. But they're just examples to show the importance of knowing who we are and who we are then flows into what we do. Now, we might, we're not gonna necessarily look like them, but we also need to go on a journey to embrace and to know and to live into our identity and our calling so we can be faithful to what God is calling us to do here. This as well is not like just something that happens really quick necessarily. Maybe there's big events. Maybe there's, there's periods of time where something becomes really clear about who you are and who's got, where God is calling you to be. But for the most part, this is a journey. And this is a process. And this is, this is not a journey that you get to the end of really quick, but this is a journey for all of life. And what I, what I want to show you is the teaching... Um, a lot of what we're doing in this series is based on um, this guy's teaching at um, a church in Portland. His name's John Mark Comer, and he's got this model of, it's just a model, so it's not like a set thing, of what it could look like over a lifetime of living into identity and into calling and working through the different stages. And as I was pre- preparing this, I'm like, he can teach this way better than me. So I'm just going to show you this video. Um, it goes for about 12 minutes. And he's just gonna teach through one model of what this journey could look like, this process could look like of, of embracing the journey of identity and calling. So if you've got the sound ready and then we'll watch this.
1: Moments in the journey, but it's, it's like that. It's a journey that for most of us, is a lifetime. Here's one framework you may or may not find helpful of seven sages of discovery of your identity and calling that I adapted from the work of Dr. Bobby Clinton from Fuller Seminary. He did this exhaustive study of a 1,000 plus leaders in the kingdom of God from the Bible, from church history, from all around the world. And his goal was to look for, is there some kind of a pattern over hundreds, over thousands of men and women um, and the journey that they go on with Jesus? And at the end, he said, yes, there absolutely is. So here's my adaptation. Stage one, he called Sacred Foundations. This is the family you were born into, the socioeconomic status that you grew up in, and the options it either gave you or did not give you. It's your gender. It's your Myers-Briggs type. It's the year that you were born in, very different to be born in, 1980 versus, you know, 2017 versus 1312 or whatever. It's your culture. And you have little to no control over any of this. But all of it, your sacred foundations are the first signpost to point you forward into your identity and the call of God in your life. Next is discovery. And this is a messy, kind of long and awkward stage for a lot of us. And you have your Jesus in the Jordan River kind of moments where there's like a revelation and a voice from heaven or whatever. And then a lot of us just wander in the wilderness for a while after that, a bit confused. And, you know, this is a season of learning and of unlearning who you are, who you're not. You do some things and you just come alive and people around you say, oh my gosh, like, did you feel that? Like, you should think about doing more of that. And you do other things and you just die a little bit inside and people around you just kind of, like, smile at you. And, you know, have you ever thought about doing something else with your your life, you know? Like, maybe there's something else that God made you, because it's not that, whatever. And that's actually all part of it. Success and failure is all part of that kind of three steps forward, two steps back. Every failure is actually a gift because now you know one more thing that you're not called to do, right? It's a beautiful thing, like by way of elimination. And so there's this messy process of question and community and Myers Briggs and the Enneagram Conference and a prophetic word over your life and sitting in something that God is stirring your soul. And for a lot of us, this isn't like a month or two, it's a year or five or ten or a decade or two, then at some point, like, you get to the spot where you start to have a firmer grasp, and you don't have all the answers, but on, like, I think this is my identity. I think this is my calling. I think this is who God made me to grow and mature into and what God made me to do with my 50, 60, 80, however many years of life. And at some point, then you have to, like, actually step out. You have to go for it. You have to enroll in the program, or start the business, or register the domain name, or plant the church, or ask her out. Just start there, okay? Whatever it is, or have a child, or make the record, or whatever your thing is. And then comes stage four, which is getting good. So Malcolm Gladwell, of course, made this famous, um, the Vienna study, one of many studies that all make the exact same point, that it takes right around 10,000 hours to get really good at anything. Now for most of us, if you, you know, work at a craft of some kind for 40 or so hours a week, that's about a decade of your life. So just think about that. If you start at, I don't know, 25 or something like that, it's not until you're 35 that you actually start to get really good at whatever your craft is. If it's marketing or sales or engineering or parenting or teaching the Bible or whatever, some of you... There's a reason that there's nobody that was around when I was preaching the Bible at first. Like none of them are still here. They all left because it was so bad. You have no idea, right? All of us, it takes time. And it's one of the frustrating things about parenting is right when you're starting to get the hang of it, your kids all turn 18 and go away to college and it's too late and you've just damaged them for the rest of their life. (laughs) There's your only hope is grandkids at that point, right? Oh my gosh, that's a whole other teaching series. Then at some point in there, you hit... What a lot of people call the wall. And this isn't a stage. Um, it's because it can happen at any point in the journey. And for most of us, it happens more than once. In fact, if you're really serious about apprenticeship to Jesus, you might hit it two, three, four, five times in your life. It's some kind of a crisis, what St. John called the dark night of the soul, where your identity and calling is tested, but in that moment, it is refined. It is a moment of truth where you divide in your autobiography. From there on out, you define your life by the before and after category. And a A lot of people tragically never make it past the wall. Like I don't know what the percentage is, but a lot of people hit that wall and go back to the status quo, give up on the dream, never go for it. But if you hang with God through it, if you don't give up, even in the doubt, even in the darkness, even in the confusion, even in the where is God and I feel so alone right now, and this is actually part of the journey. It's actually not about God's absence, it's actually about God's presence even if he feels a million miles away. And if you hang in there with God and you come out the other side, you come out changed from the core of your being out. You come a little bit beat up but yet at the same time made whole at a soul level. You come out like pretty humbled and often a little bit embarrassed even because there's a failure here. There was nothing to brag about there but yet at the same time there's a new freedom that comes to you. Not just an outer freedom, we all have that, but an inner freedom a deep sense of joy and contentment and confidence in your life with God. And this is a beautiful moment. Again, this is not a stage. It can come at any point in your journey from 15 years old to 55 years old. And it will come for most of us more than once. I've been through at least two, if not three in my life. And each one was brutal and gut-wrenching. And I would never have signed up for it. And now in hindsight, I thank God for each and every one because I came out the other side deeply changed, deeply set right at a core level. Still a long ways to go. As is obvious, listen to me talk for more than five minutes. Still a long ways to go, but I would not trade it for the world. That said, the next stage is staying faithful and fruitful. It's a very different stage from, you know, say discovery or stepping out when you're I don't know, 20-something or whatever, staying faithful or fruitful, the odds are you're more like in your 30s or 40s or 50s. And it's a very different emotional posture, the kind of idealism of youth, which is a great thing. Enjoy it while it lasts. It won't last long. Um, It has kind of, there's that cynic. I'm sorry. See, I'm in process. It has worn off. You're dealing with one of the key tasks of apprenticeship to Jesus in your midlife years, and that is dealing with disappointment. The odds are that you're tired if you, if you have a family, you're raising children, uh, you're paying the mortgage, you're into your career 10, 20 years, and it's great, but like the, the honeymoon period is over. If you're single, you're dealing with that and loneliness and whatever else comes with it and all the good. But actually, this stage, which for a lot of us is the longest stage of our life, can actually be the best, some of the best years of your life, for sure some of the most fruitful years of your life. Remember that we live in an ageist society that's all about the idealization of youth, in particular because we've limited human beings to an animal, and so everything that is human is, you know, your six-pack ab, or your looks, or your full head of hair, or whatever. And so once the abs go away, and the hair goes with it, or whatever your story, some of you are like, never, hmm is going to happen. <laughs> Trust me, like, the odds are not in your favor, all right? Um, But at, at some point, so like we idolize youth, but we forget that's the metric system of the United States of America and the Western capitalistic materialistic world that's not the metric system of the kingdom of God and if you set your metrics for success not by whatever magazine you subscribe to or whatever Instagram feed you have but you set your metrics for success by the way and the teachings of Jesus of Nazareth which is so life-giving talk about a breath of fresh air it's a whole other metric system it's a whole other value system and by the value system of the kingdom of God, your 30s will be more fruitful than your 20s, your 40s will be more fruitful than your 30s, your 50s will be more fruitful than your, I'm bad at math, 40s, and so on and so forth, like more and more and more fruitfulness. I read Psalm 92 with my kids last night, the Psalm for the Sabbath day. You will be like a palm tree bearing fruit even in old age. The palm tree, one of the few trees in the world that never stops bearing fruit, that actually bears more the older it gets. Like that is the word picture in Psalm 92 for the life of a follower of Jesus. This is God's will for your life that you bear much fruit. And your best years, not by the metric system of the six-pack abs or whatever, your best years by the metric system of the kingdom of God, if you're 20, are far ahead of you. But it takes faithfulness. Without no faithfulness, there is no fruitfulness. And because so few of us are willing to go down the path of faithfulness, we never experience the fruitfulness that God has waiting for us. Now, if you make it past that stage, and sadly a lot of people don't, then the next stage is ending well. Um, I'm not here yet, but it's just starting to come on my radar, just way down there. But you know, it's interesting, you watch so many people start really well and then end in disaster. The Bible is full of examples, of course, King Saul is the classic example in the Bible. So is the weekly news, like literally every single weekly news cycle from Harvey Weinstein and Hollywood to um, Suu Kyi right now in Myanmar, like it doesn't matter how well you started. If you're a full-on Nobel Peace Prize winner, if you don't end well... It feels to you and to many others like a failure overall. In the end, your character is destiny. You cannot outrun your character for better or for worse. And so ending well is actually really hard to do. Dr. Clinton um, made the point, he actually worked out the math and said that 30% of the characters in the Bible end well. That's all, 30%. So few people end well, whether it's a marriage or a family or a career or a ministry or a calling. So, many, so few people make it. All of you can, but not a lot of people do. And then finally, if you make it all the way to the end, there's what Dr. Clinton called afterglow. And this is like he said, very few people ever get here, but again, all of you can get here. This is like the elderly grandma or grandpa who just like isn't grouchy and weird and like, but actually everybody wants to be around her or him and everybody's asking for advice and hey grandpa, what would you do about this? And you're just living, you don't have to do anything at this point. You're just living in the afterglow of like, I put in 80 long, hard years. Now I'm just gonna like watch TV and hang out with my great grandkid. I can't remember his name, but it's going to be great, right? (laughs) This is Eugene Peterson right now in his 80s and this is Dallas Willard a few years before his death with people coming from all, like uh, top level leaders coming from all over the world. At this point you don't even have to do anything, you just get to live in the afterglow of a life well lived. And again, Dr. Clinton said very few people ever reach this, but every single one of you can if you follow Jesus. Now, again, this, may, this framework may or may not be helpful for you. My point is very simple. This is a journey. This is not like, oh, we have three months of practice. We have fasting coming up in January, so we better get this done by Christmas, right? Because you have the holidays. Really, we better get this done by the third week of November. So let's discover an identity and calling before the holiday season. It's, it's not like some of you are like, right? No, wrong. This is a lifelong process for a lot of us, and this journey
0: Cool. Yeah, I hope, hope you enjoyed that. And like he said, like, that is just a model and just a framework to give a progression of what this could look like. And the cool thing about this place at Rivers is we probably have people in all different stages of that journey. There's, there's young people who often come at night that are right at the start of that. There's some of you guys here who are, who are all different stages of that. And, and wherever you sort of would place yourself today, I suppose that the point of today and that the encouragement from today is to embrace that journey, to continue going on that journey in God, to, to take stock of where you are and to just keep going wherever that is. Um, and this can be difficult. This, this can be hard. Like he said, it's easy to give up. It's easy to settle for the status quo. It's easy to, to not face the truth about ourselves, including facing our brokenness, facing our difficulties. It's easy to want to just please and fit into the mold that people might expect of us. But God's call is for us to follow him. And as we follow him, to become more like Jesus. But the interesting thing is, as you become more like Jesus, we become more our true selves. We don't become like these carbon copies where we're all like clones. We actually become more unique, but more like him. There's this really cool quote, it's, it's by a rabbi, and he says this In the coming world, they will not ask me, Why were you not Moses? They will ask me, Why were you not Zusa? His name's Rabbi Zusa. And it's, it's so interesting to think about that. Often there's this pressure, right, for us to be someone that we're not, for us to be maybe one of our siblings, for us to be maybe someone with a different gifting, someone with a different job. But God's call for us is to be the person that he's made us to be, in him. To do that in him, not to go on our own journey and, and of self-discovery apart from him, but in him, to be the unique expression of him that he's made us to be. Um, over, this, over these five weeks, I encourage you to um, do some work around this, if you'd like to, just this, this an invitation, potentially in, in your small groups or with your family or maybe with a friend, um, this, this website that I've got there is practicingthewayorg slash identity week one. There's some activities. One of them is to look at that framework and to plot where you think you might be on that and to have a discussion around that. Another thing, um, there's, a, there's another framework there around um, differentiation and being able to separate yourself from other people and where you might be on that as well. So that's just an invitation. If you'd like to do some activities, do some work and, and engage with that journey, there's that there as well. Um, so practicingtheway.org. Cool. So we're actually going to respond to this um, with communion today. And I just want to read out a bit of a lengthy quote around Jesus and just how well Jesus did this, that, that he was his true self. He was faithful to his identity and calling all the way to the end. And this one also kind of gives some details around this. He says this, In living faithful to his true self, Jesus disappointed a lot of people. Yet he was secure in his father's love and in himself. Thus, Jesus was able to withstand enormous pressure. He disappointed his family's expectations for his life. At one point, his mother and siblings wondered if he was out of his mind. It's from Mark chapter 3. He disappointed the people he grew up with in Nazareth. When Jesus declared who he really was as the Messiah, they tried to push him off a cliff. It's from Luke 4. He remained self-assured in his beliefs regardless of the outrage of the crowds in his hometown he disappointed his closest friends the 12 disciples they projected onto jesus their own picture of the kind of messiah jesus was to be this sure did not include a crucifixion they quit on him judas one of his closest friends stabbed him in the back for being true to himself jesus crowds wanted an earthly messiah who would feed them fix all their problems, overthrow the Roman oppressors, work miracles, and give inspiring sermons. They wanted to make him king. He disappointed them. He disappointed the religious leaders. They did not appreciate the disruption his presence brought to their day-to-day lives or their theology. They had to get rid of Jesus. Jesus has a deep sense of self before the Father. He knew what the Father had given him to do, who he was. At the same time, Jesus was not selfish. He didn't live as if nobody else counted. He gave his life out of love for others. From a place of loving union with his father, Jesus had a mature, healthy, true self out of which he offered his life as a gift to the world. The pressure on us to live a life that is not our own is great. Powerful generational forces and spiritual warfare work against us. Yet living faithfully to our true self in Christ represents one of the great tasks of discipleship. So as we come to have communion today, it's going to take time to, to stop and to think about the faithfulness of Jesus, that he was faithful to who he was and what he was called to do, even though it involved disappointing all these people, even though it involved going to the cross, even though it involved giving of himself fully, that he did it that he was faithful to the call of God on his life and in doing that is the reason why we can have life in him, we can have forgiveness, we can follow him and be his disciples. And when we think about our lives, we often haven't been faithful to the person God has made us to be. Maybe we've embraced the journey but we've gone off on tangents. Maybe we've sought to be true but we've ended up living a lie. Maybe we have not trusted God have not followed him, have disappointed others, have disappointed him. And when we come to this moment now, we come and realize because of Jesus' faithfulness, because he did it, because he lived it truly out all the way to death, and because he still lives, we can have forgiveness, we can have new life, we can have the fresh start, and we get to now live and be in relationship with him. And that is our identity. That's where it starts with him. Dave's speaking next week about identity in Christ. And that's that's where we start with who we are. So I invite the people um, serving the communion to come up and be ready, and then I'll, I'll pray. And And as we take the, the, the bread and the, the wine and the biscuit and the juice, I want you to just reflect on Jesus' faithfulness. And because of his faithfulness, we can know God, we can have life, we can have forgiveness. So Father, we just thank you so much for your love for us, that even though We have not been faithful to you. God, even though we fail, God, even though we hide, even though we try and make our life work apart from you, that you've come to us. Jesus, that you lived the perfect human life. You were true to yourself. You were true to your Father and you've given yourself for us. And we just thank you so much for that. And we just pray that you'd meet us here now, God. And as we receive your love and your forgiveness, would you just lead us on the path and the journey that you have us on and show us which way to go so father we just give this to you in your name amen